Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can take those out. I hope you have them. If you don't, that's okay. I'll be reading for you in just a minute. And if you, or if you have a, a device and you want to scroll to your text over your interactive scripture, that works for me. Um, find your place in John 20, if you will. Well, I am excited to be here this morning. Are you? Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fueled right now on three things. Uh, coffee, <laughs> jelly beans, and resurrection. So <clears throat> uh, I was wondering if it would be okay with you if I read you an Easter story. Would that be okay? Okay, good, because I was going to do it anyway. I'm in John chapter 20. Would you stand with me to honor the authority of the Lord's Word? This is how John tells us the Easter story. He says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen that were lying, but did not go in. He did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along, huffing and puffing behind Huffing and puffing, that's not in the text. I, I just I inserted that because it just seems like Peter would be huffing and puffing, right? And he went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it, who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her on the evening of that first day. 
when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the Easter story. It's the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, I'm relieved. The story did not change since last year. You know, for a person like me who has to stand up here, who I shouldn't say have to, I get to do this. This is awesome. Uh, it's nice to know that the story is the same and that Christ is still risen. The tomb is still empty. And we get to celebrate that and, and talk about it a little bit. I was drawn to a phrase at the beginning. It, was, it reminded me uh, this morning... Oh, I think I got up around 4.30. It was still dark outside. And our text says that while it was still dark, Mary went out to the tomb. So either it was really early in the morning or she just lives in western Washington. I don't know, but it works for me. She, is, she gets up. She's worried about something. She's anxious about something. She's got something on her mind, and so it, she just wakes up. I need to go tend to my Lord. And so while it was still dark, Mary went out to the tomb, what was she looking for? She was looking for a dead Jesus. That's what she was expecting. It might have been physically dark, but um, John is a master at metaphors. And so as John tells the gospel story, he goes back and forth between darkness and light all the time. Basically, the, the journey of faith, the, the, the way that John tells the gospel story is a journey from darkness to light. And so while it was still dark, yes, it was early in the morning, Mary gets up and it was just pitch black outside and she goes off to the tomb. Metaphorically speaking, John is saying that Mary still didn't understand. She was uh, lost, confused. Um, she is a picture for us, if you will, of the whole human condition. We're kind of lost in our sin, and we don't know how to solve it on our own. We can't solve it on our own. And so we start in this place of darkness, and John tells us that, that we can move out of that towards the light. Mary and the rest of the disciples, they're not quite sure right now what is going on. They were in mourning after Friday happened. Jesus was nailed to the cross, and he was dead, and, and they buried him. And so they, they, they're in this state of shock and confusion. They thought Jesus was gone. Their hopes and dreams were shattered. Jesus had been with them for a few years and leading them on this ministry journey. And, you know, they believed that he was the Messiah and they were expecting it one way. And it just, it just didn't turn out how they thought it was going to turn out. And so they're, they're just confused right now. He told them that he would have to suffer and die. These were words that came out of his mouth. I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to die. But I will be raised again on the third day. And they, they were just lost on them as to what was happening. 
And they were stumbling now through life in darkness. Um, it's been a whirlwind kind of a week for me and my family. Um, Holy Week is always full of different things and happenings at the church. And uh, on top of it, this year, I had the privilege of doing a wedding yesterday, except the wedding was over in Spokane. So we, we drove Friday all day, got over there, did the wedding yesterday, and came back. And uh, it was neat to be able to go do that, and I thank you for allowing me that privilege. Um, it, was, uh, it was not at a church. It was at a, a wedding venue in downtown, quite a beautiful place, right along the river. And, you know, they had all the, the things you would normally have at, at a wedding, and they had a DJ, and he was playing music, and... And I used to be a, a DJ for roller skating rinks, and so I just, you know, went up and started talking to this guy. His name was John. And I just was wanting to learn a little bit about John's story. And he said, well, I've been, I've been traveling around a lot. I'm like, well, where, where are you from? Well, I don't know if I'm from anywhere. Um, I don't actually know if he told me an original place where he was from. But he is wandering around. Right now he's in Spokane for a few years doing this DJ thing. Um, but he said, I, don't, I really don't know where I'm going. And I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I would leave. It just seemed to me like John fit the picture of somebody who was walking in darkness at this point. He was walking in a state of confusion. He, he was drawn to something, and he didn't know how to articulate what he was drawn to. After the ceremony came up, he, he came up, and, and he was particularly interested in um, the way that the ceremony came together and the scripture passages that I used. And, and he, he told me, he's like, I've heard a lot of canned wedding speeches, but yours was different. John is venturing through life right now. He doesn't know where he comes from. He doesn't know where he's going. He, he fits the description of, I think, what maybe the Jesus' disciples felt like at this moment. Now that their Savior, their leader, the person that they've been staking their life to was gone and dead and buried. At least that's what they think right now. And they're confused. What's going to happen next? And I realize that coming into a morning like this, somebody always tells me either Easter Sunday or the week leading up to it, hey, don't forget, Pastor, this is like your Super Bowl, you know, so hit it out of the park. Well, that's a different sport, I guess, but um, <laughs> I'm mixing my metaphors here. You know, they all break down at some point. But Easter is a difficult time for some people. We don't know how to think about it because uh, even out in the world, the secular version of Easter is the cute little bunny hopping around with jelly beans and, and Easter baskets and chocolate and, and all sorts of things, and the colors are bright and light and pastel, and the sun is shining in all the pictures, and, and it's like a happy holiday, right? 
And you come to church, and, and if you haven't done the work of, of going through Holy Week and taking those intentional steps of darkness with Jesus to his cross, you go from Palm Sunday, which is kind of celebratory, woohoo, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and you come back the, the week later, and it's all woohoo again, the tomb is empty, and, and you miss that chunk in the middle. And so sometimes Easter just doesn't connect with us because we're not all woohoo and happy all the time. Some of us, we just feel worn out and we feel tired and we feel broken. We feel like life has beaten us up, kicked us around and spit us out. And so we might come into a, a worship service like this with family or friends who brought us here, which is awesome. I'm, I'm glad you're here. But you might have the question, you know what? Where is Easter for somebody who feels broken like I do? Where is where is Easter for us when we are like overwhelmed with job responsibilities or loss of a job or you know massive debt that we don't know what we're going to do or you know where is Easter when we're failed with failing health um, or we can't find work where where is Easter when our kids are struggling and we really want to help them but we just don't know how to fix it we don't know what to do we don't know how to it might be totally out of our control where is easter for somebody who's struggling with that where's easter when when our friends our loved ones you know they they turn their back on us and they disappear somewhere and we feel like we're left all alone and helpless and abandoned? Where, where is Easter when we feel anxiety and we feel the stress of life pressing in on us? Where, where is Easter when, when we look out and we listen to the news and there's so much violence and unrest in the world? Where is Easter for people who think about those things and carry those burdens around? While it was still dark, Mary went out to the tomb. There's lots of darkness that we face. Do you sense darkness around you occasionally? I, th I think it's part, of, it's part of the human condition. It's part of the human experience to feel trouble and turmoil. And, and I think it's fair to, to say that we would classify that in the, the darkness character. Uh, the category. There's always going to be adversity. There's always going to be dying things around us. And this is darkness that every single one of us is going to experience. And sometimes, sometimes when we sense this darkness, our question is, well, where's Easter? Where is Jesus in the middle of all of this? While it was still dark, Mary went out to the tomb. And this is, this is always how our discovery of the risen Christ begins. It begins in darkness. There's, there's so much good news in the 23 verses that I read for you a few minutes ago. There's so much good news for those who feel lost or abandoned or broken or hurt or confused there's so much good news in those verses for people who, who might put them in the, yeah, I, I think I'm a follower of Christ. I think I would label myself as, as a Jesus follower. There's good news for those of us who put us in that category, and, but maybe sometimes 
we feel like our faith is lifeless and void, cold, stale maybe. There's good news in our story for people who feel like, oh, I don't, this whole faith thing, it just, it, it seems so exciting and vibrant, you know, before, and, and now something's, something's missing. There's good news for you. And there's good news if you're walking step by step with Jesus to the best of your ability. Because it's an Easter story. There's always a, a fresh uh, perspective that we can get on a story that breathes life into us. And so I, all of all of the good news, I just was I just hoping that I could just share a little bit of it with you. The first bit is Jesus won't stay in the tomb that we put him in. He won't stay in a tomb that we put him in. The, the headlines of the Jerusalem Times on, on that Sunday morning reported that Jesus was dead and buried, that that storyline had ended, that uprising, that rabble-rouser was silenced. That's what the headlines promoted that morning. But that was, that was old news. Or if we're talking about these days, it's now become fake news. And you have to go way down your Facebook feed. To, you have to scroll way down to get to that old headline because the headline has changed and the morning newspapers didn't get the word in time. Something had happened in the night. None of the gospel writers tell us exactly how it happened. All that we come across is a place of emptiness. What, was, what once held a, a dead body captive is now empty, and we don't know how it happened. It just happened, and now we have people who have come and discovered this, and, and we are reading their resurrection accounts. Mary went out to the tomb while it was still dark, and she found that Jesus was gone, and she was greatly disturbed, and she's wondering where Jesus is. He's supposed to be dead and buried, and I should be able to come and manage Jesus and take care of him. And she looks in, and she sees two angels in there, one at the head and one at the foot of where he was supposed to be. And, and they ask her a question, why are you crying? Woman, why are you crying? She doesn't really, she, she articulates it, but you know, my Lord is gone, and I don't, know where, I don't know where they've put him. And then she turns around. It doesn't say anything about her being freaked out over the angels, which surprises me. She just simply responds to them. And she turns around, and there's Jesus right there, in the flesh. And he says to her, why are you crying? What are you looking for? And she didn't recognize Jesus. She thought he was a gardener. She wasn't looking for a live Jesus. So this person talking to her couldn't be who she was looking for because she was looking for somebody who would have been horizontal, dead, right? And now there's this live person who says, why are you crying? What are you looking for? Do you ever ask that question 
or somebody asks you a question, who or what are you looking for? You know, when you go through the darknesses of life, that's often a question that comes up because we are searching for something. My friend John that I met yesterday, he was looking for something. Who and what are you looking for, John? Are you looking for something that's dead and lifeless? Or, or are you looking for something that is alive and well and on the loose and on the move and out at work? Mary says, sir, she calls him sir. Sir, if, if you know anything, if, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him and bring him back. Who and what are you looking for? Are you looking for something that you think is going to answer all of life's questions, that is going to make you feel better, is going to relieve the pressure or anxiety or whatever? Are you looking for something that's dead and buried and lifeless that you can just cart around at your pleasure? Or are you looking for something that maybe has a little bit of life in it? Yeah, I imagine that Jesus has this wry smile on his face. Like, she doesn't know who I am. This is awesome. Watch this. And he only has to say one word. I wonder if he had something going on with the angels. Hey, watch this. Mary. And, and the look of shock and awe and surprise on her face as she spins back around and she just says, Rabboni, teacher. And, and can you imagine this scene? We don't get too much detail about this because John kind of moves right quickly into Jesus saying, hey, don't hang on to me. But if I was drawing out this scene, I imagine that, you know, this look of extreme excitement and Jesus got this big smile on her face and, and Mary's just going to go in for the hug, right? And she might have tears in her eyes and it's this warm and loving and exuberant and exciting embrace that, wow, what, what has happened? She's full of joy. And Jesus says, whoa, wait, wait. Now, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I would have drawn the scene up like that. I would have had this big, warm embrace, and, and then I would have maybe had Jesus say something like, hey, you know what? Why don't you go back and tell the brothers and sisters, tell my disciples, gather them all up, tell them, hey, I'm back. I'm back, and you know what? We're going to go home to Gal Galilee, and, and we're just going to gather, and we're going to have a big feast, and we're going to just enjoy this moment, and you know, kind of the get to the live happily ever after kind of a thing, and maybe on the way back to Galilee, you know, I got a couple stops that I need to make. I need to go visit that guy, Pilate, you know, and show up and say, hey, Pilate, remember me? What's up? And then, you know, as we've gone by Pilate's house, yeah, let's go over to visit Caiaphas. Hey, chief priest, what do you think of me now? Hmm? You thought I was silenced? I'm back. <laughs> but that's not what happens. Jesus says, don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me. That's my least favorite part of the Easter story. Don't Cling to me. Hmm. Following Jesus, as I think about this, why would, why would he say don't cling to me? 
Following Jesus is a never-ending process of losing the Jesus that we were holding on to, only to discover that there's a more unmanageable form of him that we are introduced to. Does that make sense? That, like, we find this Jesus, the one that's going to take care of our hopes and our dreams and, and comfort us when we're, we're in mourning, and he's going to rescue us from our, some of them, our problems, and, and we're going to grab a hold of that Jesus, and we're going to, wow, that's so awesome. I love this guy because he helped me through this thing. And you know what? The second that we do that, he's on the loose again because he will not stay in the tombs that we put him in. He's off and doing more things. I, I was talking with a friend uh, the other day. His name's Carrie. He grew up on a ranch. They had pigs on part of their ranch. And he was telling me this story about a couple of the, the, the young, let's call them piggies. Some of the piggies got loose out into the field, pasture. And Carrie, my friend, he watched this whole episode. He was smaller at the time. He had two big strapping brothers who really thought that they were something and, you know, they were kind of athletic builds and they were going to go get the piggies and bring them back and put them in the cage or the pen. He said it was maybe one of the funniest things he's ever watched in his life. Those guys were running all over the field and through the barn and here and there, and, and he said they would get close, and one of them would just dive and try to get that, part, that, that pig, and, and they would just grasp it a little bit, and then it would squirt off and you know, run around and, you know, all the sounds pigs make. You want to try that? You know, it's okay. I won't either. But he said this was just the funniest thing he's ever seen brothers chasing pigs, and he said once in a while, they'd get the pig, and it would just be wiggling them all over the place, and pretty soon, they couldn't, they couldn't hang on to the little pig. The piggy didn't want to go to the market. They wanted to go home, and so they're holding on to their pig wrestling here, and the pig would just squirt out and, and get on the loose, and you know what? It reminded me, now somebody don't tweet, because I'm not saying this, all right? Jesus is not like the little piggy, but when we think we get our arms around Jesus, in the way that we want him to, so that we can grasp him and cart him off to wherever we want to put him, he won't stay in that tomb. He will not be a prisoner to that tomb. He is out and he is on the loose. He will not stay in the tombs that we tend to put him in. I think that's good news for us. That he is out there and he wants to be part of our life he wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your Savior. But he's going to do it on his terms. And sometimes we think that we can wrestle Jesus and we can manage him and we can put him where we want to and we can, we can confine him to the tomb of our expectations. But the Jesus that we encounter in the Easter story, the, the risen Jesus, he has a different vision for our future. And he is wiggling free, and he is getting loose, and he is trying to lead us into the future that he would prefer for our lives. After Jesus was dead and buried and resurrected again, there, there is nothing that we can ever look at again as being predictable. There is a there is a there is no normal. There's a, there's a new normal, but maybe there's no normal. There's a there's nothing that's ever ordinary anymore. Not, not when a Savior is out there on the loose and trying to get us to follow him. 
to the places where he is going. He's alive, he's well, he is active, and he continues to show up where we might not expect in places that we would never even imagine him to show up. That's pretty good news. He won't put him in the, he won't stay in the tomb that we put him in. The tomb is empty. There's more good news. Uh, the disciples were huddled in a locked room. Did you hear that in the story? They had gathered on that evening. The, the word had been circulating on the street that, hey, Jesus wasn't in the tomb. Yeah, Mary brings back the report. I saw him. Maybe the, you would think they'd be a little more excited, like, hey, let's, if he's out there, should we go find him? No. The night, that first night, we find him huddled up in a room, probably the shade's drawn, the door is clicked locked, you know, the bolt latch is on, you know, they're, they're just shivering, they're cold, and, and uh, you know, I don't know what's going through their minds other than, what's going to happen? We don't, we don't know anymore what, what's about to happen, and we've been following this guy, and you know what, they killed him, and you know what, when the Romans went after people who claimed to be the Messiah, they didn't usually just kill the Messiah person. They usually spent the time necessary to round up all of the followers and get rid of them too. Maybe that's what they're afraid of. Maybe they were afraid of finding them. I don't, I don't know. It just says that the disciples were gathered in a room and the doors were locked. I imagine they felt alone. I imagine they felt like Jesus had abandoned them. But he, they might have missed some of his teaching because Jesus, just back a few chapters in John 14, he, he had said, I'll never leave you orphaned. I'll never leave you alone. I will never abandon you like that. I will not leave you alone and helpless. I will come and find you. It's in, it's in the darkness that Jesus shows himself. They're in the darkness of this this aloneness and abandonment. And, and Jesus had said, I'm not going to leave you there. And so there's another piece of, uh, there's another bit of good news here is that Jesus will take the initiative to come and find you. Maybe one amen. Sometimes I just need to be found. When I get to dark places in my mind and I don't know how to get out of them on my own, Jesus has promised, I will come and find you. I will take the initiative in that. At some level, we're all lost, alone, and hiding. Maybe it's physically, lots of times it's mentally or emotionally. I think John is, is using metaphor here again. The disciples are in, in a locked room. They're afraid. Uh, they don't know what to do. And I think John is trying to tell us that they were you know, in this, like, spiritual cage. They were, there was a, a spiritual nature to this thing. And um, they're lost spiritually. And the Bible paints a clear picture from start to finish that the human condition is we're lost in sin because we sinned against God and we have this broken relationship with him and there's nothing that we can do on our own to restore that. Jesus had to come and take care of that for us. And now all these disciples are lost and afraid and alone and they're in this locked 
prison cell, if you will, with all of these things going on, and Jesus is the one that takes the initiative to come out and bust him out of that place. And so whether it's an emotional prison, a physical prison, or a spiritual prison, Jesus takes the initiative to come in and find you. He showed up to the disciples. He came to them supernaturally. We don't know how he got there. He was just in the middle of the room. He came to them personally. He didn't send word. He came to them personally to comfort and encourage and to save. And he doesn't scold them for their sin. He doesn't scold them for their doubt. He doesn't scold them for their fear. He he practices the words of the psalmist. Back in Psalm 103, it says that God does not treat us as our sins deserve nor reward us according to our iniquities. Jesus doesn't come in with an accusing finger. He comes in to forgive. He comes in to love. He comes in to comfort. He comes in to restore them as his disciples. That's pretty good news, you think? Hey, there's more. He gives them his peace. Two times he said, my peace I give to you. Peace be with you. Shalom. And when, when we get it doubled up, like peace be with you would be one thing. But when, when the writers of this day doubled the saying, it was like additional power. Like it's like emphasis added. Peace be with you. Jesus says it two times. He's bringing the very peace of God with him to those disciples. A peace that has this great depth to it. In the midst of their fear, as their lives were totally torn apart and chaotic, Jesus speaks this word of peace, and peace came upon that place, and joy filled their hearts. You know, it's a different kind of peace than we might imagine. When I think about peaceful places, you know, my mind just kind of goes to something with a tropical breeze, a sandy beach, you know, nice bluish green water and birds. You know, that kind of a peaceful place, you can get there pretty quickly with me and you just, oh, that sounds so good. That would be peaceful. This is more like a peace that empowers you. This isn't a peace that would lead you to lay back in a lounge chair and kick up your feet. This would be a peace that settles you but empowers you. And I say that because the very next thing that Jesus says in this story is, my peace, you know, peace be with you. I'm giving you this peace. Now, I am going to send you out. So there's work to be done. Peace be with you, but the job is not finished. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He commissioned them to go out and continue the ministry that he started. He wants them to become authentic witnesses to his resurrection. Hmm. I wonder how they took that news. Because it didn't end so well for Jesus a few days ago, right? And now Jesus is asking them, hey, I want you to go out and do exactly what I was doing. I'm giving you the peace to do that. I'm giving you this power. You will have the power to go out and do this. I want you to continue my work. But they, you know, 
I'm not so sure that they bought into this right away. I don't know if we can do that, Jesus. That might be a little bit too tall of an order because I think maybe we'd rather stay here in the safety and the security of a locked room. You know, it's a mean and nasty and vulgar and unfriendly and violent world out there. Jesus, you know, yeah, it's kind of a small place, cramped quarters, but it's safe here. Maybe we'll just kick up our feet and relax a little bit. It's been a long three years, right? Can we just get a little rest? Jesus says, no, I want you to go out. I'm going to give you power to do such things. Jesus gives them his peace. And I imagine that in the deep recesses of their mind, they might have fought against that. But, you know, we have the rest of the New Testament that tells us that they did, in fact, take Jesus up on his instruction, and they did go out. And because they did, you and I are gathered here today. I imagine, though, they thought, we can't do this. And Jesus says, yes, you can. And then he breathes on them. Did you catch that part? Jesus breathes on them. My peace I give to you. That's a little bit odd, you think? I mean, there's all sorts of things you can think about with somebody breathing on somebody, but if you know you have somebody right here and they're breathing down your neck, that doesn't, that, that's not a good kind of breathing on, right? Or if somebody is you know, just newly awakened and yeah, morning breath or you know, stale coffee. You know, there's, there's all sorts of, when we, when we read that Jesus breathed on them, we might take that to a, oh, I don't know about that. But I told you this was good news, right? The, the word that John uses here is emphusaho. So if you are new or visiting with us, that's a Greek word. You don't need to know that to get into heaven, just, but it won't hurt you. So uh, emphusaho is uh, the Greek word that John uses, and it means to puff, to blow on, or to breathe on. So everybody go, Whoo. yeah, we get a little wind going in here. If you think about breath, think about it in this way, not stale coffee breath, but think about how precious breath is to your life. Breath is what gives us life. Breath is what sustains our lives. The first gulp of air sets our lungs pumping, right? When we are born, that first breath of air launches our lungs into their function. Uh, we breathe in and we breathe out. We breathe in and we breathe out until finally one day the last thing that leaves us, the last thing that departs our body is one last breath out, right? Because I could, I could have everybody like hold your breath and at some point you're going to have to breathe again. Breath is precious to life. But we're not always conscious of uh, our breath until we have difficulty in breathing. So if you have asthma, you understand what I'm talking about. If you run for exercise, you also know what I'm talking about. If you swim, if you exercise, 
some point, if you're exercising hard enough, you begin to lose your breath, and then you're conscious of your breathing. Jesus breathes on his disciples. And you think back to the very beginning, and you remember another place in Genesis where God breathes, and, and, and the same word that John uses is the one that in the Greek translation of, the, of, of Genesis, it says, God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's the same word that Ezekiel loses, uses when uh, he's talking about the bones that are dead and lifeless in the valley of the dry bones, and 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 the Spirit comes and breathes on these bones, and they all come to life. Jesus is full of the breath of God. That's the good news. Jesus is full of the breath of God. He is full of the Holy Spirit, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit when he breathes on them. Receive the Holy Spirit When Jesus exhales, when he puffs air on them, they are close enough to inhale the Holy Spirit, and they are empowered by it. They could feel their own lungs fill as they breathed in what Jesus was breathing out. What their fear had killed inside of them, Jesus breathed on them and brought it back to new life. Jesus takes the initiative to enter your darkness. He takes the initiative to enter your pain, to show himself to you. Jesus gives you his peace to comfort you and and to cast out and overcome the fears and anxieties and the stresses that you might have. And, And Jesus breathes this power of the Holy Spirit into you. I wanted to leave you with one last picture. When, uh, when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into his disciples, uh, it's the same word that we would use to translate the word wind, okay? Now, if you think about wind, you, you might think of a soft, gentle breeze, or you might think of a gale force, you know, powerful wind, now, we had one of those windstorms come through a week or so ago, right? Lots of branches, trees came down. That same day, we were going over to the coast. So we were over in Long Beach, and we thought, hey, let's go walk along the jetty. Well, you know, the wind is pretty powerful on the coast, and the waves were just crashing on that thing. And I'm, I'm up, you know, like on the jetty, and maybe that wasn't a good idea, but here I am. And I could lean into the wind and get to a 45-degree angle, and it would hold me up. That's a pretty powerful wind, right? So I'm, I'm playing around with the wind, and, and this wave just crashes up and over and just soaks all of us. So there's either a gentle breeze, wind, or there's this powerful, you can't control it, you can't predict it, you can't tame it kind of a wind, and that's, that's how wind works. You don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going, and it is powerful, and you can't do anything about it. You can't tame it. Then there's the stories of Jesus in this, where uh, in his resurrection, we learn that Jesus is not tameable. We can't put him in that tomb. He's not going to stay there. He's going to go off, and he's going to do his own thing. It reminds me of the description that the Celtic Christians used for the Holy Spirit. The Celtic Christians, somehow the gospel got all the way up there, and 
And they named the Holy Spirit. They named him Angadaglas. You know what that means? No? It means the wild goose. The wild goose is what they referred to the Holy Spirit as. And, and you know, past the first moment of, well, that's a little sacrilegious. As I thought about it, I'm like, wow, that is really good. I love that description. I love that imagery. And, and I don't know if you've had, you have much experience with geese. They're unpredictable, right? You don't know where they're going. You don't know where they come, you know, came from. If you get close to them, you know, they'll come after you. I remember growing up on the shores of Lake Superior, and the Canadian geese would just descend on our beaches and our parks, and you didn't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit. They were just untamable. They were wild. You didn't know what was going to happen. On God a gloss, the Holy Spirit, the wild goose. Hmm. There's an element of danger. There's a hint of mystery when you think about geese. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is unpredictable, right? The Holy Spirit can't be tamed. The Holy Spirit can't be tracked. Um, the Holy Spirit can't be tackled. The, the Holy Spirit comes in power and disturbs any status quo we might have and, and sets us off onto new adventures. When Jesus finds you, when he finds you, when he comes in, takes the initiative and finds you, and you give your life to him, he breathes out his spirit on you, and, and your, your newly created life is powered by the Holy Spirit. I've been a Christian for 40 years now, and there are certainly ups and downs. There's good times, there's difficult times. I think it's quite appropriate to say that living life with Jesus, powered by the Holy Spirit, it's like being on a wild goose chase. It's unpredictable. It's an adventure. It's a mystery because you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out each and every day. When you live life empowered by the Holy Spirit, always looking for where Jesus is active, where Jesus is going to show up, he will lead you and guide you into things, that, places that you would never have imagined going, doing things you would have never imagined doing. I was minding my own business, my, minding my own business a few years ago, uh, selling copiers in Chicagoland and, and paying attention to the Holy Spirit, and now look where I am. I would never have dreamed about this or imagined this, or felt like I had any gifting or ability to do anything like this. When you live life with the Holy Spirit, you're going to land in places you never imagined. It's like living a wild goose chase, unpredictable and adventurous. Sometimes I think we just try and put God in a box. Sometimes I think we go through life, and we want help with our problems, and we'd rather, maybe not rather, but we're looking for a dead Jesus one who's not going to require too much of us, one who we can pick up and we can cart around and we can manage. But Jesus is going to have none of that. He will not stay in that tomb. He will come and find you in your darkness. He will breathe his life into you. He will empower you. He will save you and he will forgive you. 
Christianity is not about bowing to lifeless idols who have no breath to give. Christianity is not about collecting information and getting all sorts of head knowledge up here. It's not even about rule-keeping or do-gooding. Christianity is about God's breath through Christ in us. It's about serving a living God who breathes life into us and affects everything we do. And it launches us into a wild goose chase. People of God said, Amen.